0: I've been looking forward to being with you today and preaching here at Richmond in your beautiful 180 year old Edmund Blackett Design Church. 180 years is a long part of white history in Australia. And you can look at the honor boards and you can look at the plaques when you're next in the building. And as you look at them, do you know anything about the people who are named on those plaques? They must have been important They must have been noble to have people who install plaques for them. But what's their legacy now? Almost everything about these once great people has now vanished. And that's what I've been asked to speak to you about today. The question of legacy. What is it that you will leave behind? What is it that you should leave behind And as you answer that question, we'll be able to work out how then we should live today and this week and this year and in the years that God gives us. Now, I'm told that publishers only make money out of selling two types of books. That's kids books and biographies. You can see that next time you go into bookshops, although bookshops don't exist anymore, next time you go into Kmart, biographies and kids' books are all they sell, and they tend to be the things that also stay on our bookshelves at home, and so it's them that leaves a legacy. And I recently flipped through two autobiographies that have been published. There was one by Ashley Simpson, do you know who she is? Well, I had to look it up, she's the sister of Jessica Simpson, and I don't even know who Jessica Simpson is. The second autobiography was by Christopher Giccioni any idea who he is? He's actually Madonna's brother. Now we might laugh at that uh, because there was no reason why anybody would pay attention to Ashley or Christopher if they weren't related to someone famous. And it seems to me that therefore there are two types of autobiographies. There are the autobiographies of famous people and there's the autobiographies of people who want to be famous but they're only claim to fame is because they're related to a famous person and that also exposes problems for us because we all want to be remembered and we actually want to leave an important mark on the world and you can do it by being famous by achieving something really significant or you can do it by being in relationship with someone who is really famous and so i want to ask today what would your autobiography be about? Now if you were to write an autobiography there would always be the temptation to exaggerate, to massage the truth a little bit, to spruce up the part that you play in things so that you can be seen as important. You can actually see that in Spike Milligan's autobiographies Uh, He's an Australian who was born in Woi but became famous around the world for being a brilliant comedian. He wrote six autobiographies, and only a manic depressive genius like him could get away with that. His first autobiography was called Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall. And that was followed by the second autobiography, Monty, that is Field Marshal Montgomery, his part in my victory. Because from Spike Millikan's perspective, the whole of the Second World War was about him. Now today, the passage of the Bible that we're looking at makes us think about our story and how we relate to somebody really important. Now I assume that most of you, because you're watching this church meeting, think that Jesus is special. And at least in some way, He becomes a significant part of your story and you need to consider him as you think about yourself. That being tied up with Jesus really affects your story is what I hope you believe. But how do you and Jesus compare with each other? How do you fit in? Of course he's so much more important than you, but what sort of story would you write? Because how do you both big note him and fit yourself in how do you deal with these competing interests and these questions are asked of us and as we listen to the interaction between jesus and nicodemus in john chapter 3 we'll get some answers now john chapter 3 is called the most famous chapter in the bible and it contains the most famous verse in the bible John 3.16, we might see in a few weeks time at the Tokyo Olympics, usually at the Olympics, people hold up signs saying John 3.16, but there'll be no spectators there, so we'll need to see what happens. And so this chapter though, chapter three, records a private discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. And we meet Nicodemus, and as we meet him, you see he is the sort of man that they actually do write biographies about. If he was to publish an autobiography, people would read it. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 with me. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. He is a Pharisee. Now before you go hissing and booing, Pharisees were the middle class and they were very religious people. They wanted to keep the smallest of the laws and they were respected because of how religious they were. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he's not just a Pharisee. He's not even just middle class. He is a ruler of the Jews. You see, Nicodemus is a powerful man in a powerful position and he seeks to honor God. And this man comes to Jesus by night. By night, that's actually an unusual time to visit, especially in the days when there weren't street lighting, when they didn't have lead lights in houses, and so everything was dark. Why did he come by night? Was he scared by what other people would think of him coming to Jesus? or is it that he came by night recorded because it shows how deep and how dark his ignorance was. But what we do see is this powerful religious man who is very well respected coming to Jesus and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is the word Rabbi. Rabbi, that's Jewish, it means respected teacher. And so this respected person, Nicodemus, sees Jesus as more important than he is and that screams so much for a man in Nicodemus's exalted position because Nicodemus knows that Jesus is a teacher. He knows that he's a teacher who's come from God and he's clearly come from God because of the things that he's done are signs that God is with him and so this powerful man comes to the great teacher seeking a relationship. Jesus pays no attention to Nicodemus' first words. He doesn't respond to being called rabbi. He doesn't respond to him being sent by God. Look at verse three with me. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You see, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? I tell you what, that's how to put somebody off, isn't it? You come, Nicodemus comes wanting to say, oh, look, I really respect you. And Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Born again, that's actually a fairly common word. Even in our fairly pagan world, American presidents all claim to be born again. People claim to be born again environmentalists, born again woke warriors and woke advocates. And so born again has lost its shockingness. But birth is the most amazing thing that happens in our world. As you have a baby, you hold in your hands something that didn't exist nine months ago. That which was just 46 little chromosomes nine months ago is alive and is living and is breathing and has characteristics of both the mother and the father. I have a friend who's an obstetrician and he says, as babies are born, he passes the baby to the dad and the normal response is, aren't we wonderful? That is, unless the people are Christian and they say, isn't God marvelous? But that is what birth is like. They're a child born with millions of genes and even though we have unpicked the human genome, it still shows you how wonderful and how jaw-droppingly amazing birth is. And Jesus picks up that idea of birth and he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So Jesus takes that most amazing of human events. And says more needs to happen. He he uses this image to declare that unless you are born again, neither Nicodemus nor anyone has any hope of even glimpsing the kingdom of God, which is heaven. Without being born again, you have no hope of eternity. You have no hope of enjoying God. You have no hope Do you see what Jesus has done? He has moved Nicodemus from mere contact with a teacher that has been sent by God to the very threshold of enjoying eternity. But poor Nicodemus, what Jesus has just said is massively important, he knows that. It is about how do you achieve what every God-loving person desires But what does it mean, born again? How can you be born again? So Nicodemus comes back in verse four at Jesus. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. That's a fair enough question. I weigh more than my mother did. How could I possibly return to her womb? This is nonsense, Jesus, what do you mean? And again, Jesus ignores Nicodemus's question. He doesn't give an answer to the question, but he gives an even more perplexing statement. Look at verse five. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Unless they're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That gives you a hint of what Jesus means. Jesus is not talking about normal birth again, but he's talking about a supernatural birth, just as a baby breaks into the world. You have to be born of God to break into that other world, into that spirit world. He's not talking about being born twice through the birth canal, but he's talking about being born again, being born from above a second time, a supernatural birth, a birth from God himself. But what is it? What is this being born of water and the Spirit? I used to think that water and the Spirit was describing the two births that people go through. The first one water that's being born naturally through the amniotic fluid and the second one being born of the Spirit was being born supernaturally from by God from heaven. But I actually don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here because in the Old Testament, it links water and the spirit together. Go back and have a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. It's a very famous Old Testament passage, and it looks forward to the day when God will make his people new, create out of dry bones, living and breathing fleshly people. And verse 25 says, "'I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from your uncleanliness. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you see water and spirit there in that verse. That is what God promises to do as you are born again, is water. You'll be washed clean. And the spirit changed by God, shaped by God, having his concerns and his character shape your character. It's being a citizen of heaven. And that is the only way that anyone can see the kingdom of God. And that is what happens to every person who is a Christian. They are washed clean and they are changed by the very Spirit of God Himself. But now there is a problem. How do you get born by water and the Spirit? I can wash myself. I can't wash myself clean of every wrong thing that i have done and how can i possibly be born of the spirit and so jesus goes on in verses six to eight flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear it sound but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going so it is with everyone born of the spirit this activity of God is just like the wind, and like the wind, you can't control it. You can't contribute to it, you can't bring it, bring it about. My daughter used to try, and when she was little, used to try and run around and catch the wind, but of course you can't. And so it is like that for being born again, being born from above. Just as the wind is uncontrollable and uncontainable, so you can't contain and control being born again. So this Pharisee, this leader of the people, cannot do anything to be born again. And this man, and you, this congregation, are unable to bring about this birth from above. And so what do we do to inherit the kingdom of God? No matter how able or how capable you are, you cannot gain access by yourself, by your own efforts, to the kingdom of God. Nicodemus gets it and so he responds in verse 9 how can this be Nicodemus asks well that would be the response I think of every thinking person there is nothing that I can do to enable me to be in the presence of God how can it be but Nicodemus should have known better because he's a teacher of the people he should have known his old testament he should have read his old testament and so Jesus has a sharp rebuke in verse 10. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you don't understand these things? Because if Nicodemus had read the revelation of God in the Old Testament, he would have known that God himself would come down and enable this act of being born again to occur. Because the summation of every believer's hope of sharing in God's kingdom The Old Testament promised that God would Himself enact. And here, it is Jesus who claims to do that. It is a clear claim from Jesus that He is doing what God alone promised that He could do. And so in verse 13, He calls Himself the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is the one who does the very acts of God. And so this man who is before Nicodemus, is not merely a rabbi, nor is he a rabbi sent by God, but he is God who has come to earth to enable this birth again by water and the spirit, so that the kingdom of God might be entered. But how can these things be? Well, if you go back to Numbers 21 verses four to nine, you probably know the story. The people of Israel are in the wilderness. They are traveling from slavery in Egypt to the land that God has promised. And they rebel against God and engage in immorality. And in that wilderness setting, God sends judgment on them. They are bitten by a plague of serpents and many of them die. And the solution, what do you do? If you were to be in that situation, what would you do? Would you go to Hawkesbury Hospital? Maybe Westmead because Hawkesbury not so big. Well, their solution was, and God told them to do this, they were to fashion a bronze serpent and they were to fix it to a pole. And as the serpent on that pole was lifted towards heaven, the people looked to that and they were saved. The venom of the snakes had no impact on them. And Jesus picks up that image to speak of himself and how God will enable people to be born again. Jesus lifted up on a pole in the shape of a cross and he says look to him and be saved. Look to him and enter the kingdom of God. So what would Nicodemus's autobiography be? not that I met and spent time with a rabbi from God and we chewed the fat on religious things. No, his autobiography would be all I did was to look to Jesus hung on a cross and I was born again and had access to eternal life. And now John distills this incredible conversation into truths we know so well. And in doing this it's not just the story of Nicodemus and Jesus it's our story as well so let me read to you those famous words of verse 16 you knew it was coming for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life God for God so loved the world it starts with God and not us The only hope for any one of us as the Spirit moves like the wind and therefore is uncontrollable is that God needs to take the initiative and God so loved, isn't that word lovely, so loved. It's not that he just loved the world, He so loved, this is how he loved the world. It's a love that is so massive and extensive, God so loved, how did he so love? He gave. He didn't send his son, he, did, he, he gave his son. What God does is give a gift to humanity and what is that gift? His one and only son. God gives the thing that is most precious to him as a gift to humanity. The gift of God is not cheap, it comes at immense cost to God that he gave his one and only son That whoever, no one watching this, nor your neighbour, nor the people you love, nor even the worst person that you can consider is outside of the range of being affected by the gift of God in giving Jesus. Whoever, what a lovely word, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life just believing in Jesus, lets you be born again, lets you see the Kingdom of God. And so our future, our destiny is tied up with and controlled and shaped by Jesus. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, our story, our future is entirely written by how we respond to Jesus. And so now to your autobiography. Listen to verses 19 and 20. We're coming near to the end. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. If you do not turn to Jesus, if you do not trust him, if you do not believe in him, you have no future. You have no hope. You have no eternity. But if you do, hear the words of John 3.16. That is, you have eternal life. So as you recognize and respond to and believe in Jesus, what you see is you are not the center of your autobiography. It's all about Him. We laughed at Ashley Simpson and we laughed at Christopher Giccioni, but their story is actually fairly close to our autobiography. It is all about who we are in relationship with that creates importance, that creates a legacy. It is all about how you respond to Jesus. And nothing that you can do in this life can spruce up the story further than telling the story of what God in Jesus has done for you. You see the story that I hope my children will tell my as yet unborn grandchildren about their grandfather is Jesus loved him. Nothing more because anything more would be less. And so as you at Richmond look to Jesus is it a plaque that you want to leave as a legacy? I hope not. Here is the legacy you can leave as you live for Jesus it will influence the people round about you and under God's good hand of mercy as you look to the son of man who is lifted up on that pole and as you conform your life to him so others around you will learn how to live and as you pray God who is the only source of eternal change will listen and hear your prayer and respond. And as you as a congregation here raise up people to proclaim his name and to big note the work that Jesus does at their work from the pulpits of church on the mission field that legacy passes on to the next generation and under God's good hand for generations yet to come as you financially support Christian ministry, dollars actually become legacy. Not the legacy of leaving a building behind, but a legacy of people, of generations of people who've been born again and born again for all of eternity. What an incredible autobiography is that? Enabled by Jesus, living to big know Jesus and influence people, influencing people and the world for countless years. Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus and the way it teaches us so much. Thank you that it's not by our position nor by the work that we do, but by looking to Jesus lifted up on that pole of a cross that people can be born again and have access to the kingdom of God And thank you that as we embrace that, as we live it in our own lives, as we share it with other people, as we train generations to come in that, that you are changing people and your world and leaving a lasting legacy. Amen.